The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Oh, Father, there is wonder in what that song is about. You have risen from the dead, Lord Jesus. You have conquered death. That is awesome. That is awesome. And so, Spirit of God, I ask you to run through the room and draw your people. Awaken them. Father, would you speak to your people through your spirit? Wake. Wake. Come awake. Speak to those of yours who are yet dead in sin. You have known from eternity past. Would you call them and speak to them? Awake. And those of your people here who already have been awakened, stir us again this morning. Bring life to us. Breathe life into your people. Fill us with a tremendous hope. What we talk about in the passage this morning is about how we were without hope, but now are with hope. Fill us with that hope, Lord. Cause us to walk in it hope-filled. Willing to lay down everything because this hope is so vast. It sustains us in every endeavor. Draws us to look to the future smiling. Not afraid. Lord, I know fear. I know what it's like. Many of us here do. Most of us know it. But speak to us. There is nothing to fear. You have won. Remind us of that, Lord. Speak from your word this morning. Stir your church. Gain great honor from your people here in this place, across the globe today. And thank you for the fact that we can be here together with one another, meeting with you over your word, filled with your spirit. Lord, wipe away all sin from our presence. Wipe away everything that entangles us. Lead us to repentance even now in this moment if there's something in the way that you can have a clear path to our hearts. Speak. Thank you. Pray, trusting you, hoping in you, looking for you to work. Work to awaken us. Thank you, Lord. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. On this Easter morning, we're stepping away from our usual study in the, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation to take an opportunity now to consider, to focus on, and to remind ourselves what it is that we celebrate this Easter weekend. Which includes, this whole Easter weekend includes Good Friday as well as Easter Sunday morning, what we celebrate today. The whole thing. The crucifixion and the resurrection of God the Son celebrate all that that has made possible, these two twin events in history. And, and they are indeed paired. They go together. We sing this morning, we talk a lot this morning about risen, about rising, about raising, but that makes no sense apart from the dying that happened on Friday. So these, these things go together. They're paired. This morning's resurrection is God's stamp of approval, His vindication on this crucified, cursed one who died on a cross on Friday. We look at that cross and we see hung there, as the Old Testament said, a man under the curse of God. 
And we see this morning this man raised back with God saying, Yes and Amen, I approve, I vindicate you. You bore the wrath from me, and now you bear my smile, my yes. So what that was about worked. He claimed to be God come in flesh, claimed to be the one who would go to the cross to pay for sin, and he was raised up to say, yes, it happened. He has triumphed over the curse, triumphed over the grave. These things, they work together. And they are indeed events in history, as in facts. Two things that happened on a calendar in time. They, they are not beliefs or theories or teachings. Uh, of course, we teach about them, and of course, we have beliefs about them, but that's because they are actually events that happened. Jesus was hung on a Roman cross at a particular moment in time outside of a particular history on a map. Outside of a particular city on a map, the city of Jerusalem, right there. He died. They speared him in the side and saw the blood separated. He was dead. Put in an actual tomb cut into the side of a hill in a garden outside of that same city. And three days later on a Sunday morning, People went and saw the great big stone rolled away, the tomb empty, and hundreds of people over the next six weeks, hundreds of people over the next six weeks, ate with him, talked with him, saw him walking around alive. Fact of history. Not theory. Nobody went off into the woods or up onto a mountain and thought this up. It happened. Which is amazing because dead people don't come back to life. Now Jesus, in his ministry, raised some dead people back to life and they died again. They're in their tombs. This one was brought back to life after claiming, I am God in the flesh. I am the only way you can be forgiven. I am the only way you can have access to God. And God did not strike him and hold him down, but instead lifted him up. And he's not in any tomb anywhere. He ascended directly back into heaven. This is really, really unique. Unique facts of history. Things that happened. He has been raised He is currently in heaven reigning, and He is coming again. Jesus is the Lord. And we celebrate that today. And we're going to do so this morning by looking at a very brief passage, really just two verses is what I'm going to focus on. I'm going to read a couple verses before that, but I'm going to just use them to set the context. We'll look at two verses to help us think about Why it is we celebrate these facts, what they actually did, what they accomplished. We look at two verses in Ephesians chapter 2. And as we do so, my hope, my prayer is that we will remember and, and I hope revel in. Here's the main point. Because Christ was crucified and raised, we can live in hope with God. Because Christ was crucified and raised, we can live in hope with God. Because of what this weekend is about, the crucifixion resurrection, we can now and forever, if you are a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, Become one, and then you can too live now and forever in hope with God. That's what's before us this morning. But before I I read the passage, I need to set set our bearings a little bit, because obviously if I'm coming in the middle of chapter 2 of something, I'm coming in in the middle. There's a context before this. I'm going to read a couple of the verses to kind of set that context up. But, But Paul, the writer of this letter, this is a letter written to a church in a city called Ephesus, Ephesians. And Paul, who wrote this, has been, just before our passage, has been talking about all that the gospel, all that the good news about what God did. The gospel is not a message about what we do. It's a message about what has already been done. And that message, he's been outlining a little bit there in the verses right before. We'll see some of that. But it's also worth noting the following context where we we won't read. 
This is in a larger context where Paul is explaining how it is that God has taken two groups of people who were hostile to each other, Jew and Gentile, and has reconciled them to each other as he reconciled them to God. So there are still people in these two groups that are still hostile to each other, but those from this group who believe and those from this group who believe become one new people, reconciled to each other and reconciled to God. And that's what he's talking about in the following verses, and we're going to brush just alongside of that, which is why it's worth pointing it out now. So with that, let me read the passage. Ephesians chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 8, and I'll read through verse 13. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those good works has a place after we have been saved. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to make two observations this morning that are going to follow the, the, the twin tracks of the passage. There's a contrast in the passage about problem and solution. And while we will come to the solution eventually, we have to start with the problem to see why it is that the solution matters. Why it is that the solution is good news. So here's the first point on the line of problem. Though God has always been at work to save, we were far off from him. Though God has always been at work to save, we were far off from him and from that work that he was doing. Far off. Starting at the end in verse 13, we see the basic problem-solution contrast. I need to be clear up front here that this is a letter written to Christians. So where it has past tense things about what used to be the case for you, he's talking about Christians, this used to be the case for you, and it still may be present tense for you. If you're not a Christian, this is still present tense. Not were far off, but are far off if you're not yet a Christian. But verse 13 puts it, But now in Christ Jesus, in other words, Christians, you who once were far off have been brought near. There's the contrast. We were far off from God and all that he was always doing to save. And he has always been acting to save from the very beginning of the Bible. If if you were to just open up the Bible and begin to read, almost immediately on page 2, probably depending how your Bible's typeset, on page 2, you come upon the greatest, the, the greatest problem that we all face, this tremendous tragedy of the fall into sin. Page one, God creates. Page two, we reject. It, it's an amazing thing. From the very beginning of the Bible, there's a devastating fall into sin. Adam and Eve, our first human, our first parents, the first people, They look at God who has made everything and and all that is goodness is displayed there and say, no. And they turn away to their own way and their own wisdom, their own thoughts. A tremendous evil. And it wrecks everything. It just flat out ruins the beautiful creation. Ruins people. Every devastation, every tragedy, every evil, every pain, every sorrow flows from page 2 of the Bible. And God looks at that God who is good and just and right, looks at that rejection of Him and says, as He must, being good and just and right, 
I will not accept that, but instead will destroy it. And so on page 2, right after that, there is a devastating sentence set on people. That's where the story starts. That's a bad beginning. But it doesn't end there. Because, again, immediately, right after that, God promised to fix it. God promises and begins to show how he will deal with sin, which is remarkable. This good and gracious God, he's a God who creates, and immediately his creation turns on him, and he says, I will not have that, and then remarkably says, but I will step in and provide a solution to it. The goodness of God, immediately right after the fall. He promises, I will provide a way to redeem people and fix them and draw them back to me. And then he lays out that promise, step by step, through the pages and through the years of the Old Testament, with these touchstones, stepping stones, if you will, of covenants. Covenants are God's arrangements, treaties, deals, if you will, that God makes with people, particular people, in particular places, about particular things, He initiates them and says, I will provide the sustaining power to keep this covenant. And he's unfolding it as you read through the Bible. This this is what the whole Bible is built around. This plan of how God is going to fulfill his promise to fix what we broke on page 2. And he unfolds it, and he unfolds it, and he unfolds it. And the plan all along is unfolding in the context of one particular ethnic people, the descendants of Abraham. People who would become the nation of Israel, the commonwealth of Israel, the word in our text, a country. He's not doing it among the Chinese. He does not make covenants with the tribes wandering around Europe or South America. He's doing his work, he's carrying out his plan and unfolding it bit by bit, his plan to save among one people, the people of Israel, the Jews. Not because they were better in any way whatsoever. The Bible's really clear about it. Not because you were more righteous, not because you were more willing, not because I saw you would accept this. None of that. None of that. The Bible's clear. God chose them because God decided to choose them. He's God. He gets to choose. That's what he did. And so there's this long story throughout all the pages of the Bible about God claiming one particular people, making a promise to dwell among them and be their God to save them, and showing them how much they needed to be saved by laying out before them what he's like and showing them how they turn away from him and how they need something to be fixed. Page after page he's showing this and and promising in particular That one day he would send a great king who would shepherd this people in a marvelous way. Who would establish among them righteousness and justice and truth. His kingdom would would spread over this people and would produce in them a holy, restful, peaceful joy. A day with no night. And so they long through page after page and and year after year for this anointed, this special king, this Messiah. That's what the word means. The Christ to come. Now, probably most of us here kind of know that story, but but in case you don't, that's, that's the story of the Old Testament in brief. None of it's really elaborated on in this passage, though. It's mentioned in verse 12. You see the words Christ and the commonwealth of Israel and the covenants of promise. He's he's touching on it there, but not elaborating on it, because like most of us, this is written to a church, and they know the story. They, They know the basics. The point is seen in the command of verse 11. Spoken to Gentiles, the church, 
And there's some, if you follow it closely, there's some name-calling going on there in verse 11, indicating the hostility between the two groups, Jew and Gentile. But he's speaking to the Gentile church, and the command, (coughs) pardon me, the command is the point, remember. Remember. Before the cross, all of this was going on being unfolded over a long time in a lot of detail. God was at work to save, drawing near, presenting Himself in a tabernacle, presenting Himself in then a temple, showing Himself in laws given and instructions and in mercies granted again and again, promising to a people in a context way over there. And you were far off from it. Remember that. Far off. You see the, the key repeated word there? Separated from, alienated from, strangers to. There's a work going on and you're not a part of it. There's a God at work. You're not anywhere near it. Far off. Separated. Now, sure, if you were to become a Jew, you could join them. But otherwise, that's God at work there, not where you live. Not for you. Hmm. Frankly, you don't even know about it. God has always been at work to say, but we were far off from it. And then the result is, notice the following effect in verse 12, separated from all that, we are left without hope, and without God in the world. That's how the verse ends. And there's a punch in it, because it's actually the word order. Hope, not having. No God in the world. Far off from this hope, you don't have. Remember that. That's what we need to consider here this morning. This is what verse 12 is pointing out to all of us. Maybe you come here every, every week. You've been a Christian for a really long time. You, you know all of these facts. And on the other hand, maybe you're in town visiting relatives this week and you've never been here before and never will be again. We've got a, a great big spectrum of people here. And to every one of us on that spectrum, God in His Word is speaking something to us. He has a message that either should be remembered if the past tense applies to you or should be realized if the present tense is you, if you still are far off. To be separated from this specific story, from this this story with this Savior in these covenants, this plan to be separated from that is to be separated from any hope and from any God. Hear that. Because what we often want to say is, I'm not a part of that story, but I have my own story. And that works just fine too. I have a different path to a different God, and I'm I'm good with that. Or maybe we want to say, I'm not a part of that, but I have a different path to the same God. I know there's only one God, but there are a lot of different ways to get to Him. Or we want to say, I don't really need God. I have plenty of hope anyway. All of this is very common today. It's very polite. It's very non-confrontational. It's very tolerant in some sense. And it's all very wrong. Which I suppose is intolerant. But it's good for you to hear it, and I say it in love. There is a great big delusion in the world that we can have hope and that we can have God in any different way that we so choose. And what God says is, no, you do not. You can have hope and you can have God in one way. And to be far off from this way leaves you with no hope and with no God in this world or in the next. 
God has graciously prepared a long work of salvation. One. One work of salvation. Because of what the problem is. The problem from the very beginning was humankind's turning away from God and turning to our own will, our own way, our own desire. Deciding what to do, what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. In a way that appeals to us. And instead of one good, wise, gracious God, we have thrown Him away and the seven billion gods who are left over, each one of us, we are all turned over to doing what is right in our own eyes. And the wreckage continues. The rejection of God ruins us and ruins the world around us and it earns from this just God a wrath that is total and terrifying if you understand it. And nothing that we do, nothing that we create and everything we create is all the same. Nothing that we create fixes this. Everything, every, every religion, every philosophy, there are 10,000 different religions in the world, and they are all, except for this one, all alike. Everything centers on teaching people to do better, to shape up, to establish a more righteous set of rules and follow them more carefully. None of that works. It doesn't touch us in here. God has said in His law that He requires of us, and He can require it of us because He made us. The Maker gets to call every shot. The Maker is in charge, and He requires of us total allegiance. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, Soul, mind, and strength. God has told us that repeatedly in the Bible. All. Not a one of us does it. And no rule we make up can change that. Most, most particularly because it's, it's getting at our hearts. Our hearts are turned away from, not just our behaviors. Love in the heart. Total allegiance. Can't happen. We are left separated from Him without hope, clinging to all kinds of stuff in the world, which is just tragedy. Nothing temporary can give you a permanent hope. Think about that. Nothing temporary can give you a permanent hope. But man, do we try. If just one day I can graduate, if just one day I can get this job, if just one day I can go out with that girl, or if she'll come home with me, and, and maybe we could get married, and maybe we could have some children, and maybe the grandchildren would come along, and, and, and hopeless, it all passes away. We are flowers quickly fading. We are trapped in bodies perishing. We are people of decline. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are trapped in decay, in dishonor, weak, passing away. Without hope, separated from God, and not a thing we can do about it, far off. Remember, that's who you were, maybe who you are. Remember. Because that sobers us and puts us in a spot to say, I can't do anything about that. But amazingly, this God can and did. Which brings us to the second point. The other half of the contrast. We were far off Here's the second point. We were brought near by what God provided at Easter. We were brought near by what God provided at Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And notice, it is brought near, not came near. 
I did not come near. I was brought near by God. This is the goodness of God who has done all of this. He brings us near. We don't come. He brings. Marvelous. Verse 12 lays out the separation, the problem of alienation, the far off. And then verse 13 says, But, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is a precious sentence. Christian, this is at the heart of your hope that you have been brought near, not just into the vicinity of God, but brought into the very presence of God, brought into union with Him, something that could not happen at all before. God has made it so. Whereas He used to say, I look on you with anger. He now says the exact opposite. I look on you in delight. Not just, I'm okay with it, but in delight. In pleasure. With a smile. Rests on you a a hand of eternity changing love. All because of the operative phrase there, by the blood of Christ. That's what made it so. By the death of Christ, by Good Friday's cross. When the Bible talks about by the blood, it means death. It does not mean that Jesus in some way can slit his wrist and bled a little bit or, or sweat drops of blood and that's what it is. No. He shed his blood. In other words, he died. Because of his death on the cross, that's what brought us near. That's what could bring you near. Well, how? Well, it's because the blood of Christ brings us near because of what's at the heart of the problem. Because of of what's at the very core of the reason that we were far off. Because of the holiness of God. Long story made short, the reason that behind why God worked in one particular place and way is because of His great holiness and His need to dwell in a clean place. Which is why all of those, if you read through the Old Testament, you see all kinds of things about sacrifices and rituals. All of that stuff is designed to be washing a place and washing a people so that a holy, clean God could sit there and tolerate it. Because He's holy, pure, So animal sacrifice upon animal sacrifice and ritual upon ritual designed to drive off and keep away all the vileness of sin away from a holy God because He cannot tolerate it. But of course, none of that worked. As shown by the fact that they had to keep being offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice offered again and again and again. None of that really worked. It's just pointing us towards the thing that would. The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ alone cleanses everyone who washes in it once forever, once totally. Does that by breaking the penalty and the power, pays the penalty that sin has earned for us, the penalty of God's wrath. It pays for it. When he goes to the cross, he dies taking on him the wrath of God. He takes the penalty that was due to me. And he breaks in me the power that sin has on me, in my, in my, my nature on the inside. The thing that does not want God is broken. Now, I still struggle with it, but I don't have to obey it like a slave obeys a master. There's a change that happens. Christ at His cross accomplishes both of those things, paying the penalty and breaking the power. And so this King then, this crucified one who comes out of the grave to reign, He looks on me now, 
on everyone who believes in His blood and makes a covenant with everyone based on that blood, not based on a bloodline. It's no longer an ethnic people defined by a bloodline. It's one people defined by His blood. And all who trust in His blood alone to wash away the sin off of their hearts. When that happens to you, when you trust Him, He washes away the penalty and breaks the power of sin in you. And there's no longer any barrier between you and God, brought near where you once were far off. You can have God again. A good God who did it all. You can have God again. Think about this. Because right next to that is hope. But think about it. You can have God again. And if, as you sit there and think about it, and you hear me say two, three, four times, you can have God again. If you're saying, yeah, and... You don't understand God. Everything you have ever sought, every good thing you've ever longed for and found just outside of your grasp, the reason your heart is drawn to it, now it could be all modified and tainted by, by sin, sure, but the reason your heart is drawn to it is that there's, there's an echo there of God. It's, it's a shadow of something greater and, and supreme. You, you can't see that there. You can just see this. I want that. Oh, I, I long for a little bit of rest, a little bit of delight, a little bit of peace, a little bit of contentment. All of that's Him. And a little taste right here that you're longing for. The old song about looking for love in all the wrong places. The reason you're looking for love is that you're looking for God, who is love. To say you can have Him again is to say you can be joined to the One by whom and for whom you were made and the One for whom your heart is calling out and desperately wants, even if you don't realize it. The only reason there is anything good in the world is because God is good and it's all meant to point us to Him. What a privilege it is that He has made it so that you can have God again. All kinds of hope. All kinds of hope. Having God again means that here in this world you have one not only who is good and meets the call of your heart, but who reigns over every single thing you face that is troubling and hard and frightening and says... I've got it. Trust me. It's under control. What a hope that is for you. What a hope that is for you as you look at tomorrow's difficulty. We, we sit in here this morning, right now, isolated, but if, if you stop for a second and let your mind run outside this room and run back to work or run back to your den and the conversation you're going to have with your spouse later, or run back to the classroom and, and the difficulty you have there with, with classmates, you run back there, you realize there is trouble in the world. And with God, you have one who says, I reign over it all and I have it. With you as mine, nothing happens to you that I don't control for your good. There's great hope in that. But more than that, there is the hope that the resurrection speaks to. A hope that says nothing here is permanent and all the trouble that you face is passing. We are flowers quickly fading. That is true. Christians and non-Christians alike. 
We are right now trapped in bodies that are perishing, that are decaying. Our strength runs away. Our minds fade. That is true. And the resurrection says there is another life coming. When He comes for you, He will raise you imperishable, full of honor, covered in glory, filled with His Spirit permanently, forever and ever and ever. Do you think about that? If we would be a people, if you would be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl even, I know as as children, I know it's, even as teenagers, it's hard to think about, I'm going to die one day. But it's true. And to think about every trouble and every affliction that I face right now has an end point of drastic 180 degree turn. A turn to glory and a turn to strength a turn to intimacy with this one who is goodness. To think about that should give a lightness to your step. It's real. Christian, it's real for you. And you had no part of it before. You used to be far off. And nothing you did brought you near. He brought you near by the blood of Christ. And He is with you now. Yea, even in you now. And He will raise you up changed. And He will change all of the world and wipe away every tear from it and every sorrow and every loss, plant you in it, walk with you through it forever and ever and ever and spend ages unfolding to you the depths of His grace. We're most fortunate. Remember that. You will be joined also to to touch on the other theme of this passage, you'll be joined also to a great people. Our lives now, human interaction, man, the only reason we have armies and police departments is because of human interaction. All of you soldiers and policemen will be out of a job. Because there won't be any need for it. The union of people would be beautiful. Do you realize there's something in us that calls out for relationship and as soon as we bump into it, something in us calls out for separation. But that won't be anymore. The sweetest... Every now and then you get a little pinnacle of a human interaction that is beautiful... That will be the norm for eternity. People joined together into a people. It'll be marvelous. Community like you've never known but have only dreamed of. In the center of it, a great king who is wise and just gracious and loving, and colors everybody around you so that they are also wise and just, gracious and loving. Can you imagine? Yes. You can. You want it. He'll bring it. Remember where you were and what He has done, where He is taking you. Not just into a land of rest and not just into a people, but really, to pick up another Bible image, into a marriage. Into into a, a wedding feast that leads on past that to a marriage like none of ours. 
We're still sinful people. The human interaction thing again. But we will be married to this great groom. He is a marvelous king. He is a fantastic ruler. And he is a tremendous lover of the soul. Yours forever. Awesome. Christian, remember. And I should also ask, do you yet need this? In other words, I talk about what used to be and what will be, but are you actually in that camp or is this what still is and what might be for you? God has done a marvelous thing at the cross and in the resurrection to provide a way that you might have Him and with Him might have hope. But right now, if you don't have Him, every hope you lean on is passing, failing, empty. The guy you hope in isn't the answer. The money you look for won't do it. Every hope, every hope in this world leaned on, trusted in, will fail you. But here is a hope. Here is a God. Here is a leader. Here is a husband who will not ever leave you nor forsake you. He has proven that by coming out of the grave alive. He lives today and says to you, trust me. Throw everything on me. Don't hold anything back. Here is a God who stands and at the same time looks on human sin in anger and provides in tremendous love a solution to that very problem. And He bids you, come and take the solution. Come and trust it. I put it on the table right here and say, believe. And I will deliver you. And I will love you with an everlasting love. And pour out on you steadfast loving kindness forever if you come. But if you do not, he won't. And you are left still without hope and without God in this world. Don't stay there. Don't stay there. But come to him and trust him and find life. Christian, remember what he has done. And friend, if you're not a Christian, come and find him to be a great Savior. Because of this weekend, this Friday and this Sunday, we can live with God with hope forever. Let me pray. Father, you are so good to provide for us the solution to our deepest need. Thank you. I pray for those of us here who already know you, are already in relationship with you. I 
pray that you would move in them to press on them great, wide hope. I know a smattering of the issues that people face, some very small percentage. We face troubles at every turn. Some of them in our heads and hearts, some of them in the world around us. In all of that, Lord, will you speak to them, I am here with you, and so you have a great hope. Speak that to your people, even now. Father, commission your spirit to awaken your people. And Lord, on those here who do not know you, would you please work to call into yourself some man, some woman, some boy, some girl. Make them aware of an offer presented in love that is an offer they can't refuse. Make them aware of that. An offer they don't want to refuse. But the only offer there is, one that can't be refused. Make them aware. Open their eyes. Give them faith. Warm their hearts. Shine, Spirit of God, and illumine the beautiful Savior Jesus. We look to You. We can't do it ourselves. We look to You to do Your work Thank You for a path that brings us near. Thank You for a chance to celebrate and to remember. Build Your church, Lord. Have Your way among us. Honor the Son. Bless His children. Bless His bride. Cleanse her. Thank You. Thank You, Jesus. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.